We are in the Psalms as we have been for the last few summers. And this morning's Psalm is Psalm 20. So if you would, turn to it. Otherwise, you can just listen as I read Psalm 20. Would you stand, if you're able and you have the energy, for the reading of God's holy word? May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. And let's pray. Holy and glorious God, the God who saves sinners for his glory, you get all the glory. Glory to God alone. We sang that truth and we rejoice in that truth. Salvation is not of man, it is of God. We praise you this day. You are the God who created everything. You made the sun. You made this planet. You put us on it and you made us in your image. The wind that blows, the the flowers, the grass, the weeds, the bees, everything was made by you. You thought it up and you spoke it into existence. And we acknowledge you as our creator and our savior. God, as we gather in this place this morning, we ask for your help. We pray that you would help us rejoice in the blessings that you have given to your people, especially those in this local church. May we rightly recognize you for every, every single good thing that we experience, from a good meal to a a cold lemonade on a summer's day to fellowship to our salvation. You are a generous God who gives us all that we have that is good and right and beautiful. Lord, we praise you for the local church that though we continue to struggle with sin, that that we are not a perfect church. We acknowledge that because we are full of people who are not yet perfected, but one day will be, who plod along and press on by faith, seeking to grow in grace. We praise you for this local church. We were not meant to be saved and live the Christian life alone. You have blessed us with the local church. We're part of the universal church, but we get to be a part. It is in your providence and your wisdom you have put us into this community, in this place, in this local church. Thank you, God, for the blessing of the local church. Lord, we also pray for those among us who are suffering, whether that be physical or spiritual, relational or emotional. Lord, we are in a trying time, and there's always difficulties and struggles that we face. So we pray that you would be with those in our church, in our family, in our community, who are especially facing great trials in this season. Lord, encourage hearts. Use your word to feed faith this morning strengthen your people, sustain us, be glorified in and through not just the blessings that we experience, but the sufferings that we endure. May Christ be made much of. And now, Lord, through the preaching of your word, do what only you can do. Encourage the the weak in faith, the discouraged. Lord, we pray that you would bless and strengthen and increase our joy. 
Lord, we, we pray that those who need to be exhorted, corrected, rebuked, that you would do that through the preaching of your word. May your word go forth. May the gospel be seen, believed, and rejoiced. And we pray all this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Well, this morning's psalm, Psalm 20, is called a royal psalm. Remember, there are different categories of psalms. They're not just one type of psalm, but many different categories of psalms, and many of them can fit into different sections and categories or multiple categories. Well, this one is called a royal psalm because it refers to Israel's king, who was the divinely appointed ruler over Israel. Like many of the psalms, we we don't know all the details surrounding this specific psalm. We don't don't know all the background of Psalm 20, but we do know that King David, the great King David, who God used to to, uh, kill Goliath in battle, he is the one who is credited as the author of this psalm. Uh, That's the same as as, uh, about half of the psalms were written or credited to King David. And we also know that based on the content of the psalm itself, that David wrote this psalm to be sung before leading Israel into battle. And so this means that Psalm 20 was was not just a worship song, it was also a song that the Holy Spirit caused David to write to help rally the people for battle. This is a worship song and a battle cry that was sung before the Israelites went into battle. In a sense, I believe that this is what all faithful, God-glorifying worship songs do. They exalt God first and foremost, they record, they explain, they they mention truth that is found in Scripture, reveals, they reveal to us the, the glories and greatness of God, and also they help prepare our hearts to do what God is calling us as the people of God to do. Church, just as singing praise to God helped Israel pick up their swords and follow their king into battle, our singing praise to God helps us pick up our crosses and follow after Jesus day to day. We sing to worship God first and foremost, but we also sing for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we sing for the good of our own heart. If more and more of us Christians understood this, more and more of us Christians would sing praise to God more and more loudly. When we gather with God's people for corporate worship, we wouldn't just barely sing. We would sing with confidence. Some people think it's, they're too cool for school or too cool for church to lift high the name of Jesus Christ in song. That's ridiculous. When we gather together for corporate worship, we're singing praise to God and we're singing for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're singing for our own good. We need to understand this, church. And I want to give you a personal example of this, and it's not just a personal example for me. It's a personal example for you. If, if you were here uh, in the call to worship, and if you were especially here when we sang the first song, because it's, it's about the first worship song that we sang in corporate worship this morning, What a Savior. We sang that song together just a few minutes ago. And when we sang that song, we proclaimed to God and to one another and to ourselves these truths. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We sang that to God and to one another. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Not partial atonement. Not half atonement. Full atonement. God didn't do half of it in Christ. He did all of it. We sang that together. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. If you sang that, if you sang those glorious truths 
Think about what you did. You sang those truths to people who desperately needed to hear those truths this morning. It was so good for my heart to not just sing them, but to hear these gospel truths from you today. Now, we have to sing louder when we're outside. You know, in the sanctuary this morning, in the most God-honoring way, it was bumping. Worship was bumping, and not because there were drums. There was no drums. People were lifting loudly their voices to praise God. Praise God. And I heard these truths. They were echoing in my, not just mind and in my head, but in my heart. In my place condemned he stood. I will not be condemned because he was condemned. Sealed my pardon with his blood. It's done. He sealed it with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When you and I sang that song, we glorified God. And we said to all our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling today, Lift it up was Christ to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring. All his ransom. If you're a Christian, that's you and me and every other Christian who has ever been saved. All his ransom. He's going to bring us home into the new heavens and new earth. Glory awaits us. We reminded each other of that and ourselves of that when we sang that. And so you see, worship and song is, is not some little trite thing. It's not just for the people who have really good singing voices. I'm not one of them. It's for the people of God. Singing praise to God is worship to God, and it is also a weapon to help us and others live for Christ every day. And so this is why we Christians are to be a singing people. This is why we are a singing church when we gather and why we sing at home and in our cars when we are scattered. Singing exalts God and it helps ready our hearts to follow and obey Jesus Christ. We need to sing. Some of us love to sing in our cars. We believe that singing as a family is a tool for discipleship. I know that my boys don't understand all the, the truths that they're singing when we sing praise to God, but they're there. And I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will bring them down from their head. And, and even as they sing them, at some point, my prayer is that they will make their way, those truths, down to their heart by the Spirit. And they will rejoice in them with their parents. And so we must be a singing church. As Israel's king, the Israelites' fate was intertwined with their king. The future of the king and the future of God's people were united. They were one. Victory for David would be victory for Israel. Defeat for David would be defeat for Israel. And King David knew that the Lord wins the battle for his people. That the victory is the Lord's. And so the people of God were to trust in God. This is why David wrote Psalm 20. To direct his own heart and the people's hearts to trust in the Lord. Because victory in battle would not ultimately come because of David's ability to be a leader in battle. David was a great leader a phenomenal military leader. He never lost a battle, but he didn't trust in his ability to lead. And, and victory wouldn't come for Israel because of their military might. So often they were outnumbered to prove a point to them that God was their fighter, that God would bring them victory because victory for God's people comes from trusting in the Lord. This is why David proclaims in verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots and horses. These aren't the cute little chariots and horses that you can ride in at, at uh, you know, you, downtown or at, if you go to Central Park in New York City. Oh, that's beautiful. How romantic. No, these are not romantic chariots and horses. 
These were war chariots and horses built and designed to wipe out the front lines of an of a army that they were running into. They, they would have had one or two soldiers with a, a big shield to protect any blows or darts and a sword. And as the, 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 the horses made their way into the front lines, these horses were trained to sacrifice themselves, to run and not retreat into battle. These soldiers would, as many as they could, take out the front lines of an army. And David says, some people will trust as they face the war horses and chariots in them, in their ability to, to gather enough chariots and horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. Those war chariots and horses were the tanks and the military artillery of their day. And David says, no, we trust in the, in the Lord our God. They had to fight. There was still a battle. They had to pick up their swords and shields and bows and arrows and fight. But David said, ultimately, the people of God, they trust in the Lord. And so in light of their situation, it's not hard for us to understand why David wrote Psalm 20. Now, what can be difficult for us to understand is how Psalm 20 applies to us today. After all, we are not ancient Israel. David is not our king. And we're not preparing to go into a battle like this where we're facing war chariots and horses and soldiers with, with shields and bows and arrows and swords. Now, David is not our king. But we Christians do have a king who leads us in battle. And it's, let me remind you, not the president of the United States of America or some other earthly leader. Our king is the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we also sang this truth earlier in the fifth verse of that song, What a Savior. We sang, when he comes, our glorious king. And so there is a direct connection between King David and King Jesus. For Jesus' human ancestry is traced back to King David through his mother Mary, as well as Joseph, Mary's husband, who raised Jesus as his son. So Jesus is royalty. He's a king. He is a son of David. And not just a son of David, he is the son of David. The long-promised son of David who would be the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David that one of his own descendants would sit on the throne and rule forever. That one that was promised, that son of David, is Jesus. He is the king who rules and reigns forever. The true king the greater king who leads God's people into victory, not by merely defeating an army, but by de defeating death and atoning for our sin. As we make our way through this psalm, we do so not only with King David in mind. Yes, we remember the historical background, the, the context and who was singing it and why they were singing it. But as Christians, as people of the new covenant, we, we keep Jesus, our king, front and center as we make our way through this psalm. For just as David's victory was Israel's victory, Christ's victory is our victory, Christian, for we have been united to him by faith. Our destiny, our fate is intertwined with our kings. Just as Israel, Israel's destiny and fate was intertwined with David's, our destiny, our fate is intertwined with Jesus because we are united by faith to him. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through our King. And therefore, despite some of the differences between those who first sang Psalm 20 and us, I do believe Psalm 20 serves the people of God today in the very same, the exact same way that it served the people of God then. It provides the believer with the path to victory in battle. And that path to victory is simply this. We are to trust in the Lord. That was the path to victory for the Israelites then. It's a path to victory for the believer today. 
This psalm was written to encourage us to look to and trust in God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David wrote this psalm to, to focus his heart on the, and the hearts of the people on the Lord so that they trusted in the name of the Lord, their God, as they went into battle. That was the path to victory for Israel. And again, church, that is the path for us to victory. But we're not preparing to go into a battle with spears, swords, or bows and arrows like the Israelites who first sang this psalm. Still, we are very much in a battle. And the Bible tells us that for the Christian, there are three front lines to this battle. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Our king is ruling and reigning. He is king. And he has won the ultimate war through his death and resurrection. He's ruling and reigning. The prophet Jeremiah prophesying about King Jesus' rule and reign said in Jeremiah 23:5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So our king's rule and reign is marked by justice and righteousness. Now we don't have to look very hard or very far to see opposition to Jesus' rule and reign, to see injustice and unrighteousness. In our country, we see opposition to King Jesus in the form of abortion. God is the author and creator of life. Jesus came and he lived and he died and he was raised to bring life now and forever. And so the murdering of millions and millions of pre-born babies in this country in the name of the freedom to choose is a sad and wicked, rebellious act against King Jesus' rule and reign. Yes, it's sad. It's brutal. Yes, it's difficult, and people need to hear the gospel, whether they're thinking about abortion or they've had an abortion. These people need to hear the good news that God saves sinners, whether they're drunkards or people that have had an abortion or are considering having one, the gospel goes forth. And yet any of these acts, uh, an abortion is, is a rebellious act against, against King Jesus. We also see opposition to Jesus' rule in the redefining of marriage. Marriage was created by God and given to humanity, not only for our good and enjoyment, but as Paul writes in Ephesians 5.32, to help us understand the beautiful relationship between King Jesus and his precious church. And so if you get marriage wrong, you get this, this important, beautiful covenant that God has given to humanity to help us better understand our relationship to Jesus. And so we cannot redefine marriage. Because if we do, we're, we're twisting and distorting and undoing this picture that God has given to us for us to understand and for the world to understand. What does it mean to be a Christian? I am part of the bride of Christ. You mess with with the definition of marriage, you're messing with King Jesus and his rule and reign. Of course, the opposition doesn't end there. In this season, we see it again. Those who hate, seek to destroy, and kill others because of the color of their skin are in opposition to King Jesus' rule. For we were all made in God's image to glorify Christ. And so whatever the color of our skin is, God made us all to be part of one race, the human race. Some of us have darker skin. Some of us have lighter skin. We are part of the human race to glorify God. He made us to glorify God. We also see opposition to Jesus and his rule and reign from those who are looting and rioting and destroying businesses, homes, and seeking to harm others, whether that be the police or elderly ladies who are walking down the street. And why? All in the name of fighting injustice. They're just causing more injustice, more acts that, that are a rejection of Jesus' rule and reign. That's not justice. 
That's not righteousness. That's sin. We Christians are also in a battle against the flesh. Here, flesh does not refer to our physical body, but to indwelling sin. This is a battle that takes place within our own hearts. Because even after we are ransomed and redeemed by the glorious sin-atoning death of Jesus Christ, our King, by our King who died on the cross to bear the wrath that we deserved, and even though we have been justified by grace through faith in Christ, declared righteous by God, not because we have become more righteous, but because we are united by faith to the righteous one. Jesus is our righteousness. And even though we have been born again, we are new creations in Christ. What happens? We still continue to battle against sin. We're tempted and we give in at times into temptation. We say things, we do things, we think things. We confess this in our corporate confession that are wicked and rebellious acts against our king. And so we find passages like Colossians 3, 5 through 10, where we are commanded to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's not the time of peace language. You know, some Christians are walking around thinking, we're in a time of peace. You know, I, I live in a nice community, a nice house in New Berlin or Brookfield or West Dallas or Milwaukee or wherever it might be. Uh, I, this is great. You know, I got two and a half kids, three and a half, whatever, you know, the average is now. I think it's not, it's one. I've got the white picket fence and, and, a, and two or three dogs. No cats, just dogs. I've got all this. Look at this. This is a time of peace. I could say to my soul, be content and be happy. No, we're in a war. This is not language of peace. Covetousness, which is idolatry. I believe that this is one of the great sins in our community and the temptations for us as a church to sin. Covetousness. To put our hope and our joy and our peace in stuff or in sports, or in academics, or in career. Different communities have different sin struggles. I mean, we, we, we can all have all of them, but in New Berlin, in an upper middle class, middle class area, covetousness can destroy. We have to fight it. Paul continues, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's work to be done, a, a battle to fight. This battle against the flesh requires that we put sin to death, kill it. What John Owen and others have called the mortification of sin. And requires, this requires, as Paul states a, a few verses later in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, that we also put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Some of us are really good at, at killing those sins that Paul lists earlier, but it's really hard for us to be compassionate. Really hard to be kind, especially if, if people aren't kind towards us. We don't want to be kind. We want to get back at them. To be humble. To, to put on meekness. To not try and prove ourselves to be better than someone. To have patience with those who are really frustrating. To bear with one another. That's hard. It can be hard for us to put on love, and we need to because that binds everything together in perfect harmony. So we're to put off and put to death and put on. That's battle language. And believers, we're also in a battle against the devil who seeks to attack and destroy God's people. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor, battle language, of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the Christian life, if you're living the Christian life, is full of spiritual battles. With this many people seated on, on the church property, you know, there are tons of battles going on right now. And if you don't think you're in a battle, that's the battle, to wake up and realize you're in a battle. And we have unique battles going on. Some of us are suffering. Some of us are facing difficulties at work or in our families. Some of us don't know if we'll, we'll continue to be able to work. There's so many struggles. Battling cancer, relational issues in our family. Believers will encounter various trials, temptations, and attacks from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And spiritual battles are not fought with swords, spears, guns, or tanks. They are fought by faith. As we are attacked, as we are tempted, when we suffer and we struggle in this life, what are we to do, church? What are you to do, Christian? And it's hard. Don't get, don't get me wrong. This is hard. We must trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is the path to victory for the believer. This is what we must do. Fight by faith. And that is the aim and purpose of this psalm, to encourage us to trust in the Lord as we prepare for the battle. Now, you have, you have maybe noticed that as we read through the, the psalm, it's a responsive psalm. That is, there are parts to it, and people had different parts. Just like our confession of, of sin, we read that together, and then you hear this assurance of pardon in response. There, there are parts to this psalm. Three parts. In the first part, verses 1 through 5, the people of God ask that God bless their king. And though they are petitions to God, they are addressed to David. All these prayers for blessing were connected to David's salvation. The people of God were praying for their king's salvation. The people were pleading for the Lord to sustain and strengthen and save their king. They wanted God to answer David's prayer for victory. Look again with me at verse 3. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Before going out to war, Israel's kings offered sacrifices to God in hopes that the Lord would accept them and show them and him, the king, favor. That is grace. Favor is grace. So, so not just Israel's king, though Israel's king would make the offering, the sacrifice, if he was a good, holy, and faithful king to God. All the pagan kings and rulers would do this too. Whether it was Moloch or Baal or whatever, whatever false gods they worshipped, they would make sacrifices to, the, to those gods. Israel's king would make a sacrifice to God in hopes that God would, would show them favor in vict- and give them victory. And so that's what David did. Now consider your king, Christian. Rather than making a sacrifice, your king became the perfect sacrifices. All those sacrifices that the Israelite kings would give, they were animals. Our king stepped down, became a man, and made the perfect sacrifice himself. God sacrificed himself on the cross to redeem and rescue us. Jesus laid down his life for his people. He atoned for our sins. And in doing so, he guaranteed victory for all who trust in him. And remember, church, we were slaves to sin, dead in our sin and rebels. It's not just that we were like free agents, like we were on the side and, and we were looking for which battle to fight on, which side to fight on. We were fighting on the other side. We, we were with the enemy. We were enemies to the cross. And what did he do? He died for us. We were born sinners and we chose to sin. And if you're not a Christian, that's still your condition. 
You're born a sinner and you choose to sin. And unless you repent and trust in Christ, you will die a sinner. And you will receive the wrath that you deserve for rebelling and rejecting the king of kings. And that is eternal torment in hell. That's the reality. And yet, in Christ laying down his life, our king laying down his life for us, he guaranteed that the sacrifice was accepted. He gave us eternal life. Jesus is God, God the Son, and he offered up his life to God the Father as a sacrifice for our sin. The king made himself the sacrifice. And there is no better, greater, more loving king than Jesus Christ. Yes, we are in a battle, and in this battle, some will trust in chariots and some in horses, or to put it in more modern language, some will trust in money or power or in relationships or in their house or their career. They will trust in their fame, their popularity. But you and me, Christian, we Christians trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That's what we do. We trust in God. And like the Israelites who sang verse 5 to David before following him onto the battlefield, we can say by faith, we will shout for joy over our salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. When did they sing that, verse 5? Before the battle. They still had to go out and fight. They still had to pick up their swords and their shields and their bows and arrows and fight the fight. And yet they say, they're already looking forward to that day of victory when they will shout for joy. Some of them were shaking in their sandals. They were battling against fear in their hearts. Some of them were going to die and they were looking forward to that day when that battle was over and they could shout for joy and lift high their banner of victory. Now again, I'm a sport guy and I think about banners. And when do, when do teams raise banners? When they are the champions. They raise the banner in the rafters. You know, the Bucks championships from back in the day, they're there. And those of us who weren't alive when they happened, we look at them like, they were the champions. That year, they were the best team. Well, the people of God were singing this before they went into the battle. Our God is the champion. And even as we face this battle and, and some of us will perish in this battle, well, well, we will shout for joy in that day and lift high the banner. Church, Christ has already won the war. There are skirmishes and battles to fight, but he's won the war. He already atoned for our sin and was raised from the dead. And because of his victory, one day we will be raised to, we get what our king has earned for us. He did it. Victory is won, but there are battles to fight. In the second part of the psalm, verses 6 through 8, David responds to the people's request for God to bless him. And look at the confidence in David's response. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Now, as I was preparing to, to, to preach this, I was thinking about David wrote a prayer and then said, hey, people, pray this for me. <laughs> I've never done that. I've never written a prayer and then said, hey, would you, would you come over here and pray this for me? <laughs> I've asked people, would you just pray the gospel over me? I've asked for prayer for certain things, but he said, this is what I want you to pray. And then they prayed it. I guess that's what the king can do. He can tell us what to pray. And, and David did that. And, and not only that, but then he sang these words, 6 through 8, verses 6 through 8, back to his people. He said, you pray this for me, and then I'm going to sing this back to you. Now, picture the scene. Perhaps all the leaders of the, the military and, and, and influential people and soldiers and, and some of the people of God had gathered together. 
And this is before they step on the battlefield. King David steps out to prepare his people for the battle. He knows it's going to be hard. They know it's going to be hard. There's going to be struggle. Some will perish. But he, he says those who trust in the Lord, they will rise and stand upright. Now, he's not saying all, all the true believers are going to make it through this battle and, and they'll be on the other side. And all the people who die really didn't trust in the Lord. That's not what he's saying. I believe he's pointing to the resurrection for all believers. And, and he's foreshadowing it. All, who, all of us will rise and stand upright. The king is trusting in the Lord and he's calling the people of God not just to follow him into the fight. He's calling them to follow him in the trusting of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, ultimately the Lord, who is Jesus Christ. Follow me, not just into battle, but follow me in trusting in the Lord. Our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, demonstrated this same confidence even more throughout his entire life and ministry. As the anointed Messiah and the Son of God, he entrusted himself completely to his Father in heaven. And at first it seemed to many, even to his disciples, that the Lord would not save him as he hung on the cross for our sins. Nailed to the cross, he hung there. and People saw him hanging there. The disciples saw him hanging there. It seemed that Jesus' cries from the cross would go unheard. But what happened in the end? Jesus rose from the dead. He stood upright, and not just for a time, but forever, as he stands upright in heaven right now. Jesus is not in the grave. He has a physical body right now. He stands upright. And church, the confidence of our king who submitted to his father's will, even as he faced the wrath that we deserve, encourages us to be confident in the battle. He is our king, and we follow him. And look at what he did. He did not shrink back. He did not turn back. He did not retreat. He went to the cross and he won the ultimate victory for our souls. Can we not follow him in the battles that he brings us into and through? We can. We can and we must. This brings us to the third and final part of the psalm, verse 9. It's just one verse. The people having been encouraged to trust in the Lord by David, hearing their king say these truths to him, they make one final request to God for their king. O Lord, save the king. And then a request for themselves. May he answer us when we call. After he died for us in raising him from the dead, God saved and vindicated our king. And because Jesus is alive, our king always hears us when we call. Every single time, Christian, you call out to him, he hears you. He's never too busy for you. He's not distracted. Our king hears all of our calls out for help. Now, there was a time when David couldn't, could no longer answer his people. He made it through this battle, but eventually he died. Now, he's, he's with the Lord. He's in his presence now. But those who lived through that time when David died, they couldn't call out to, to the king anymore, not to King David anymore. But that day will never come for those who trust in the name of the Lord. As Hebrews 7, 25 assures us, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Romans 10, 11 through 13 states that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, his riches, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this is the believer's path to victory. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That is where you are to walk, Christian. That is the path to victory. Let's pray. O oh, great God, Father in heaven, who sent his Son to bear the wrath that we deserved, 
who led us through and into victory, not because of anything we have done. We did not pick up a sword. It wasn't even a certain prayer that we prayed. It was all of Christ. It was all for your glory. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, our King, we praise you this day for you have won the victory. And in our lives, as we face these battles, which in the grand scheme of eternity are minor skirmishes, give us strength. Use Psalm 20 and your word to encourage us to press on, to trust in the Lord our God. Spirit, we praise you. For because you indwell us, you remind us, and you press these truths deeper and deeper into our hearts. Help us to believe them more and more. Some will trust in chariots and some in horses, but we believers, we Christians, trust in the name of the Lord our God. Bless your people this day with great joy in Christ, we pray. Amen.